Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 5, Episode 1, A More Perfect Union. Greetings, listeners. If you're a longtime Ed Infinitum subscriber, then welcome back. And if you're new to our little educational community, then welcome aboard. We're happy to have you. And this episode, the launch of our fifth season, is a great place to start. Because in this episode, we'll be exploring the history and multiple perspectives on one of the most integral and divisive institutions in American public education, teachers' unions. Depending on who you ask, teachers' unions are either the best or the worst thing to happen to the profession of teaching. Either unions defend and protect teachers against arbitrary, unsafe, and unreasonable working conditions, or unions provide teachers shielding from accountability, prevent schools from being nimble enough to change and adapt to new conditions and methodologies, and prioritize the needs of teachers over those of their students. In a worldview that sees teachers' working conditions as to some extent synonymous with students' learning conditions, then teachers' unions help preserve teachers' ability to effectively and equitably serve all students. In a zero-sum view of schools where either teachers' or students' needs can be met, but not always both, then unions prioritize the needs of teachers, or worse, the political and economic fortunes of higher-level union leadership, at the expense of student learning and well-being. Here, as with so many issues in education, and in life in general, the set of assumptions you start from, and the particular case studies you examine, do a lot to shape the conclusions that you come to. What I'll attempt to do in this episode is trace some of the history of teachers' unions, dipping in and out of the perspectives of those who created and benefited most from their existence, and the perspectives of those who opposed them, or at least found them problematic for one reason or another. As someone who has both benefited from and was active in his own teachers' union local, and who also found himself at odds at times with union influence, I hope to be able to fairly represent multiple narratives, And even if ultimately I do have my own conclusions about the role and value of organized labor in teaching, I aim to leave you with enough information to better inform your own opinions. I suppose it's difficult to disentangle the history of teachers' unions in the United States with the history of organized labor more broadly, so I'll try and give as quick and concise a summary as possible of that larger picture, not with the goal of doing it adequate justice, but at least with the aim of sketching out an overview of the context in which we'll eventually be talking about organized labor specifically in the field of public education. The basic concept behind having a labor union is a simple one. If you're a worker in a factory or a mill or a classroom, and you don't think you're being paid well enough, or if your working conditions aren't safe, and you complain to the management that you should be paid or treated better, they can just fire you and replace you with someone who will keep their mouth shut and take what they're given. But if you coordinate efforts with several dozen, hundred, or thousand co-workers, and all of you tell management that unless they improve your lot, you won't work for them, then that factory or mill or school is not going to be able to operate without you. And management either has to close, hire all new workers, which isn't always easy, especially if there are a lot of people across your entire industry in your union who are all standing in solidarity, or give in to your demands. That's what collective bargaining is in a nutshell, the idea that workers have more power when they speak with one voice, and that owners and managers need to keep workers happy if they want to actually run their industry and make money from it. Workers using organized labor stoppages as a lever to demand better pay and working conditions in the United States arose at least as early as the 1700s. Workers in skilled craft and artisan trades began working together to agree on minimum prices, to hold firm against competition who attempted to employ cheaper labor. 1827, as far as I could research, marked the first time tradesmen all across a single city, in this case the Mechanics Union of Trade Associations in Philadelphia, entered into a compact for this purpose. And by the 1850s, the first national unions began to form for these same goals. But organized labor in the shape that we're more familiar with today really took off during the rise of the Industrial Revolution. While today's champions of unfettered capitalism often enshrine the work of early economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, it was Ricardo's theory of labor that actually guided the earliest industrial workers' unions, a theory which includes the following formulation. Workers labor, say, to make a piece of wire, 
is worth a certain amount of money. But a factory owner who then sells that wire that his workers made bases his price on demand. And if that wire winds up selling for more than it cost for him to pay his labor to make it, then he has every incentive to just pocket that profit and not increase his workers' wages. A later German economist, whom you might have heard a little bit about, named Karl Marx, went further, saying that factory owners will never pay workers what their labor is actually worth, because if they did that, then there would be no profit. And as that gap between what owners make in profit and what workers are paid grows and grows, and as workers become conscious of the fact that their bosses are entirely dependent upon their labor in order to make any money at all, then the workers may start realizing their power and organizing so as to withhold their labor in order to demand better compensation. Actually, Marx said that eventually the workers would realize they didn't need the bosses at all, and since there are so many more of them than the bosses, they'll kick those bosses out and take over all the means of production themselves. That's the road that he hoped would lead to an entire takeover and eventual disillusion of capitalist-backed governments, which he blamed for perpetuating inequality and whom he felt had to be removed in order for human beings to ever live in harmony and dignity. Organization of labor in the United States generally had more modest goals than that. Conditions of factory work in the late 19th and early 20th century were uniformly brutal, with rampant disregard for worker safety and health. My own great-grandmother worked at the infamous Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, where 146 women and girls burned to death thanks to locked doors and lack of fire escapes that had been installed by design to prevent workers from taking breaks. People who labored in these factories did so for very low wages, with no guarantee of pay increases, reasonable breaks, or any real kind of job security. Workers who organized into unions during that time were attempting to change all of that, and despite continual conflicts, disagreements, internal schisms, and external rivalries, as well as ardent opposition from corporate, state, and national leaders, which often included violence on the part of police and private security alike to suppress union organization, these labor movements managed to win victories like the 40-hour work week, guaranteed weekends, sick days, pensions, and retirement accounts, health and safety standards, and some measure of due process for hiring, firing, and promotion. These conditions improved wages and security for hundreds of thousands of American workers, and despite the fears of owners, actually resulted in increased productivity. This rising tide that lifted all boats lasted until the beginnings of globalization in the late 1970s. But before we get into the landscape of today, let's continue our tour through the past so we can see where and how teachers fit into all of this. Because as much as I've talked in previous podcast episodes about how schools in America were built along factory models, teachers were not literally factory workers by any stretch of the imagination. So how did the story of organized labor in the United States involve them? In the United States today, there are actually two national teachers unions, the National Education Association, or NEA, and the American Federation of Teachers, or AFT. And their stories, although intertwined, have some significant differences. The NEA was founded in 1857, and it didn't start out as a labor union. Its originator was one Zalman Richards from, perhaps unsurprisingly, given its first-in-the-nation role in just about everything in education, Massachusetts. Zalman had an old New England pedigree. He was, in fact, a direct descendant of Plymouth colonists, although he distanced himself from his British roots, at least linguistically, by signing his name simply as Z, and unleashing, I quote, vials of wrath if one called him Zed, end quote. Despite only being able to attend public school through age 10 due to his responsibilities on his family's farm, Richards nevertheless fell in love with education as a profession, apparently due in no small part to one of his teachers, Sybil Bates, about whom I've been able to find frustratingly little information. He managed to eventually continue his education at several private schools and even became a teacher himself, before attending Williams College on the strength of loans for his tuition something which we take for granted as a requisite part of college attendance today for just about everyone, but at the time was comparatively uncommon. With his graduate degree, Richards became a school principal and eventually helped to found several normal schools, which were what lab schools for training teachers were called. But that wasn't all. This man was a machine. 
In no particular order, he published a teacher's manual and a mathematics textbook, founded a YMCA, became a Washington, D.C. city councilor, organized medical support for wounded soldiers during the Civil War, was instrumental in helping Congress establish the Office of Education, a very, very early forerunner of the Department of Education, and served as the first superintendent of Washington, D.C. schools, all this while also surviving a bankruptcy. Apparently, Richards gave out too many loans to friends, and teaching a private school that operated out of his own home. But most salient to this episode was Richard's role in establishing the National Teachers Association at a meeting of 38 intellectuals at the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. As the first president of the NTA, Richard's goal was to professionalize the field of teaching. He wanted to elevate the image of teachers in the minds of Americans who then, just like unfortunately now, were as often viewed as babysitters and caretakers as professionals in the same way that, say, doctors and lawyers are viewed. To that end, the NTA began advocating for stricter standards for teacher training and certification, and commensurately higher pay and prestige. Crucially, the NTA also felt that teachers themselves, and not politicians or community members, should be making the decisions about their working conditions, including what and how they taught. Remember, the field of education in the United States was conceived as an extension of the democratic process, hence the locally elected school boards, which then, and even to a very large extent now, decide how their individual schools and districts operate, including what and how they teach. In its early years, the NTA was mainly an association of wealthy white male eggheads, with precious little involvement from actual teachers, who were at the time 75% women, both white and African-American, and generally not so wealthy women at that. And this didn't change much even when 13 years later, the NTA merged with the National Association of School Superintendents to become the National Education Association, or NEA, the name it still goes by today. What changed all of that was a teacher and organized labor legend named Margaret Haley, who went on to earn the moniker Lady Slugger, she was born in Chicago to Irish immigrant parents, was radicalized by growing up in harsh economic conditions, and from studying in college under populist economist Henry George. Haley became a teacher at the famous Cook County Normal School, where she studied under no less legendary a progressive educator than Francis W. Parker. See Season 2, Episode 2 for more on him. Haley eventually taught the children of stockyard workers in Chicago, and in doing so became active in the Chicago Teachers Federation, a local teachers' union that had been organized by the female teaching staff in 1897. In its very second year, the Federation, with Haley as one of its leaders, successfully fought back against University of Chicago President William Rainey Harper's attempt to block the employment of women as teachers in the city, and failing in that to block them from getting pay raises. President Harper infamously responded to these teachers' protests by saying they should be glad to earn as much as his wife's maid did. Haley and her union comrades, especially one Catherine Goggin, were able to successfully rally voters to defeat Haley's proposed measures, and went on to successfully advocate the next year for tax policies that would ensure that Chicago schools received sufficient funding. With fiery rhetoric, Haley called the National Education Association to task for, to some extent, sharing in Professor Harper's philosophy of equating female teachers with domestic help, as opposed to with other professionals. She addressed the 1904 NEA convention in a speech called Why Teachers Should Organize, the full text of which I've linked to on my website and which you should really check out. In this episode, I'll just quote its conclusion, and as I read it, Think about how much of it could be just as applicable in 2022 as 1904. Quote, Two ideals are struggling for supremacy in American life today. One is the industrial ideal, dominating through the supremacy of commercialism, which subordinates the worker to the product and the machine. The other, the ideal of democracy, the ideal of educators, which places humanity above all machines and demands that all activity shall be the expression of life. If this ideal of educators cannot be carried over into the industrial field, then the ideal of industrialism will be carried over into the school. Those two ideals can no more continue to exist in American life than our nation could have continued half-slave and half-free. If the school cannot bring joy to the work of the world, 
the joy must go out of its own life, and work in the school, as in the industrial field, will become drudgery. It will be well indeed if the teachers have the courage of their convictions and face all that the labor unions have faced with the same courage and perseverance. Today, teachers of America, we stand at the parting of the ways. Democracy is not on trial, but America is. End quote. What was some of this drudgery that Haley was protesting? Well, wages that were two-thirds as much or even less than those of other government workers without pensions or benefits. Strict dress codes and behavior codes, including the high likelihood of being dismissed from your teaching job if you got married or if you had children. Some teachers' contracts specified lengths of skirts, styles of shoes, and policed how often teachers could even go on dates. Teachers taught in classrooms that were overcrowded, poorly ventilated and lit, with inadequate or even non-existent supplies, and constant surveillance and micromanagement, with very little official autonomy or control over what they taught and how they taught it. For African-American teachers in the segregated Negro schools, conditions and pay were even worse than for their white counterparts. And not only did Margaret Haley's activism manage to bring more women into the NEA to advocate against these conditions, but just four years later, the NEA would go on to elect its first female president, Ella Flagg Young. Season 4, Episode 3 provides much more detail about Miss Young, the first woman in America to head a large city school system, Chicago's, and details the fight that she became most famous for, which was for adequate sex education in public schools. But Young's leadership of the NEA transformed it into an organization that didn't just advocate for the teaching profession from an intellectual standpoint, but now actively engaged in the struggle for workers' rights, particularly female workers' rights and equality. Her goal was for improving classroom conditions to become the NEA's new chief charge, although it would take a few decades before it would come to really be the NEA's core advocacy. This was due in no small part to the fact that this philosophy did not always sit well with not only the male old guard among the NEA, but also with the more radical elements who wanted immediately closer ties with labor unions. Some of these groups, including some former comrades of Haley's and the Chicago Teachers Federation, decided to throw in their lot with the American Federation of Labor, or the AFL, formed by Samuel Gompers, which had by then already become the largest alliance of workers' unions in the country. This is the group that would eventually go on to become the American Federation of Teachers, or AFT, in 1916. This identity as a labor union, first and foremost, was core to the AFT, and distinguished it from the NEA in those early years. While the NEA continued to include educational administrators, for example, the AFT saw principals and superintendents as management and forbade their inclusion in its ranks. The NEA focused much of its efforts in the early 20th century on influencing state and national education policy, while the AFT's focus tended to be extremely local, supporting individual member unions' efforts to win improved working conditions in their schools and districts. Despite the presence of thousands of African-American teachers, most early 20th century teachers' union locals were segregated by race. While the AFT did allow black teacher locals to affiliate directly and even to send representatives to their integrated national conventions as early as the 1920s, in practice, integrated local chapters were few and far between, and by one source's reckoning, in 1928, only 11 African-American teachers were members of integrated local bargaining units. The NEA didn't even make a pretense of integration until the Civil Rights era, but African-American teacher labor activists formed their own somewhat parallel organization in 1906 at the Negro Young People's Christian and Educational Congress. The group's founder was John Robert Edward Lee Sr., better known as J.R.E. Lee. He was born a slave in Texas, eventually becoming a school principal and later a professor of mathematics at Tuskegee University. Lee worked directly with Booker T. Washington in that role, and he and his colleagues first called the new organization they founded the National Colored Teachers Association, then later changed the name to the National Association of Teachers in Colored Schools, and finally, the American Teachers Association, or ATA. The organization's most famous president was undoubtedly Mary McLeod Bethune herself, and she and subsequent leaders worked closely with the NEA to advocate for teachers and students of all races, with the NEA finally absorbing the ATA in the 1950s. 
But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Both the NEA and the AFT's ranks swelled in the early half of the 20th century, even as they faced strong opposition. Business owners and the elected leaders who depended upon those business owners' financial support were often rabidly opposed to organized labor. And that sentiment was compounded, where teachers' unions in particular were concerned, for several reasons. One, of course, was sexism, the idea that underpaid or even unpaid labor was simply expected of women, which the majority of teachers were, and the fact that they were demanding higher wages was particularly galling to the men in charge of public education. Then there was that whole public aspect of public education. Teachers, like all public servants, were paid via tax revenue, and the idea of publicly funded employees showing disloyalty to the public they served by striking or even criticizing the conditions of their employment was considered questionable at best by many. This feeling only intensified after the 1919 Boston police strike, where hundreds of city cops protested low pay and abysmal working conditions by refusing to police the city, and the resulting period of chaos and lawlessness brought the intervention of the army and the passage of laws in states and cities across the nation that outlawed public sector unions entirely, and that included teachers' unions. Even where such laws were not passed, pressure from school boards forced many teachers out of the AFT, and new teachers often had to sign so-called yellow dog contracts, where they swore loyalty oaths that included promises not to join a union, and they could be fired if they did. The first Red Scare during the 1920s further demonized teachers' unions as communist sympathizers, which, to be fair, wasn't always an inaccurate assessment. The NEA had an easier time during this period than the AFT, because now more than ever they sought to distance themselves from labor unionism, branding their organization as more of an advisory body or professional club. It still maintained the so-called teacher councils of practicing classroom educators, but its members who were school administrators often talked in terms that management found less threatening. One thing the NEA was very vocal about, though, was a push for teacher tenure. Tenure is a policy, often misunderstood to this very day, that protects teachers from being fired without just cause, and establishes a clear contractual system for what does and doesn't qualify as due cause, usually only severe misconduct or gross incompetence. Tenure doesn't mean teachers can't be fired. It means that, unlike many employees in the private sector, they can't be fired for frivolous, personal, or unclear reasons. University faculty depend upon tenure, vanishing a protection as it is right now in higher education, where fewer than 25% of professors nationwide still have it, to, among other things, allow them to pursue and publish research that their employers might find controversial or unpalatable. Without such protections, the argument goes, research couldn't advance, because it would always be afraid of ruffling powerful people's feathers, which it often does. Ever since its inception in the 1880s, the NEA was insistent that pre-college teachers also needed such protections, especially because of the aforementioned ability of management to fire them for such causes as getting married or going on dates or expressing disagreement with their principal. Massachusetts was the first state to pass laws allowing for pre-college teacher tenure back in 1886, followed by New Jersey in 1909. But it was the 1930s that became the flashpoint for pro-tenure activism, given the massive teacher layoffs and firings that happened during the Great Depression, some for economic reasons and some for political ones, especially when tough economic times drew more and more workers of all stripes towards unionizing. Union membership grew by over 300% during that decade, aided by New Deal-friendly progressive legislators. In 1932, the Norris-LaGuardia Act outlawed yellow dog contracts that forbid union membership. Those had also been ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court a few years earlier. Then the Wagner Act in 1935 granted fundamental rights and powers for unions, including the right of collective bargaining. It also defined what unfair labor practices were and established penalties for employers that practiced them. By the end of the Depression, tenure of some kind had been achieved for teachers in 17 states, largely because of the NEA and the AFT's lobbying efforts. But the picture was not all rosy for teachers' unions by the end of the 1930s. The Wagner Act had a glaring blind spot in that it excluded public sector unions from protection of collective bargaining rights. 
teachers, police officers, firefighters, and other public employees still didn't have any protected right to strike or other advantages that private sector unionized workers now enjoyed. And this allowed for massive legal consequences for teachers who took part in the massive waves of strikes and labor stoppages that occurred across the nation after World War II. Yet teachers' unions still won important victories during this time. By 1951, for example, 97% of school districts across the United States had adopted pay scales that disregarded gender, a result of tireless activism by union locals. I say locals here because the leadership of the AFT and the NEA at the time remained overwhelmingly male, and frequently didn't see the closing of the gender pay gap as a priority. Unions overall enjoyed their heyday from the 1950s to the 1970s, when collective bargaining in the private sector became an expected norm that benefited everyone. Management got a routine, predictable, reliable workforce, and workers enjoyed high wages and solid security. In 1959, Wisconsin became the first state to allow public sector unions to have legal protections, although, not importantly, the right to strike. By 1970, 22 other states had followed suit, and part of what enabled this progress was the civil rights movement, and many racial rights and union rights activists found common cause, arguing that collective bargaining was a human right that should be extended to all. The AFT had thrown its considerable weight behind the Brown versus Board of Education's desegregation decision, just as civil rights groups like the SCLC, the NAACP, and CORE welded economic weapons like boycotts and business disruptions to great effect during the 1950s and 1960s, and so too did teachers' unions follow that example. Most famous among the leaders of collective teacher action during this time were probably Albert Shanker and David Selden who formed a kind of sub-union among AFT locals in New York City into the powerful United Federation of Teachers, or UFT. The son of Polish-Jewish immigrants, Schenker was an avid intellectual even from a young age and a fierce member of the debate team at New York City's elite public high school, Stuyvesant High School. As a college student, Schenker got involved in various socialist organizations and took part in and organized pickets and other demonstrations against segregation. Schenker began teaching math in East Harlem at first to finance his graduate education, but then abandoned his doctoral study entirely to teach full-time, eventually abandoning teaching to be a full-time organizer of teachers' unions in the city. Schenker soon developed a reputation as a skillful and highly aggressive negotiator, helping teachers win salary increases, sometimes using strikes to do so. Schenker served a series of jail sentences for leading those strikes, which were, remember, still illegal, but also highly effective. A series of strikes that he helped lead in 1963 finally won collective bargaining rights for teachers in New York. In fact, between 1960 and 1974, over 800,000 teachers across the country took part in over 1,000 strikes, and by the end of the 1970s, 72% of public school teachers were protected by collective bargaining agreements forged with their district leadership, organized through their locals as a part of either the AFT or the NEA. Yes, the NEA, which in 1973 expelled administrators from its ranks and became a labor organization by philosophy. Some of that came as the result of a highly controversial strike that drove a racially-based wedge between black and white members of the NEA's parallel organization, the AFT, and it was again thanks to Al Shanker. I really need to devote an entire episode to the 1968 New York City teacher strike someday that Shanker organized because, boy, is it complicated. But I'll attempt to summarize it here. It took place in the context of the struggle to desegregate New York City schools, one effort towards which included the transfer of 13 teachers and six administrators out of the Ocean Hill-Brownsville district, a new administrative reckoning created in Brooklyn in a process that included forced student busing, which had already created conflict between Puerto Rican and white, predominantly Jewish, community members. These redistrictings were seen by some civil rights activists as a step towards integration, and the creation of local school councils seen as a way to include and elevate the voices of more citizens of color. These redistrictings were often seen by teachers' unions, however, as a way to split up and rearrange local unions in a way that eroded their collective bargaining abilities. In the eyes of those who supported these personnel transfers, 
these were a way to get more teachers and administrators of color into the newly integrated schools. In the eyes of those who were opposed, this was a subversion of the normal hiring and retention process and was thus a violation of hard-won protections that unions had fought for, especially since the dismissed educators, whose number eventually rose to 83, were given letters saying their employment had been terminated, which flatly violated the whole you-only-get-terminated-for-cause-through-due-process part of teacher tenure. Accusations of racism were levied against the largely white teacher union leadership, who in turn responded with charges of anti-Semitism, as nearly all of the transferred personnel were Jewish. African-American and Latinx parents rallied to support the decision, while New York's Mayor John Lindsay, the New York City Board of Education, and the American Jewish Congress all denounced it. It was, as you might imagine, a mess. Shanker, white and Jewish and a union leader, rallied teachers across the city to strike, which they did. In the end, about 93% of New York City's 58,000 teachers walked out and essentially shut down the public school system for 36 days, during which more than a million students were unable to attend school. All kinds of nasty language, both racist and anti-Semitic, were exchanged between supporters and opponents of the strike. Even though in the end the unions won, the dismissed teachers were all reinstated and control of the district returned to the New York State Education Commissioner rather than that local council which had been administering the district and had ordered the personnel changes, a deep racial divide had been gouged into the city. And suits and countersuits, demonstrations and even some small acts of violence continued to be exchanged for weeks to come. The largely white UFT and the African-American ATA, once allies across racial lines, became bitter opponents involved in legal battles, and many black teachers became disillusioned and left, or depending on who you asked, were forced out, of the New York City public schools. Some went on to form independent African-American pride schools. Controversial rabbi Meyer Kahana formed the Jewish Defense League in response to what he saw as an increasing anti-Semitic threat from the city's black residents during this time. So, like I said, a mess especially considering how unified the pro-union and pro-civil rights movements had been only a decade earlier. For additional context, when Brown vs. the Board of Education brought the closure of the Negro schools of the South, the African-American teachers who had taught in those schools were almost never able to get hired by the newly integrated but still white-governed remaining public schools. The 1968 teachers' strike was often read by black educators, or black people considering becoming educators, as yet one more declaration that teaching was a field that only welcomed white people. It's no accident that today, nearly 90% of the teaching force remains white, to the detriment not only of students of color, but of all students nationwide. However complex and problematic it could get, teachers' unions nevertheless were enjoying prominence during this time a prominence that their private sector counterparts were soon to lose. Unions in the private sector were to suffer greatly over the next five decades, as new technologies that increasingly replaced human workers with machines and computers, and laws that made it easier for companies to move operations between states and eventually around the globe, weakened the power of American workers in nearly all industries. Employers don't need to negotiate with you or give you good working conditions, if they can replace you with a computer or a foreign employee who will work for dramatically less money. When President Ronald Reagan fired 11,345 striking air traffic controllers in 1981 and barred them from ever again working for the federal government, it showed how the power of unions had diminished. America went from having one in three workers employed in a union in 1970 to only one in 10 in 2020. In an ironic reversal of unions' origins, now it was the public sector that had the highest union membership rate, about 33 or 34% today, versus only 6.1% in the private sector. It's no accident that, concurrent with this trend, real wages have fallen. The average earnings in an American paycheck today, by many measures, haven't budged much since the 1970s, and job protections have largely vanished with no-contract, gig-style jobs growing every single year. The teaching field hasn't yet been so easily outsourceable, but ironically and tragically for teachers' unions, the endurance and success that they've enjoyed has engendered popular backlash against them. 
As a series of economic recessions and other crises hit the United States in the mid to late 70s and early 80s, the OPEC oil embargo, the loss of manufacturing jobs, the savings and loan crisis, rising inflation, many municipalities' tax dollars dried up, and their union-negotiated and thus legally bound commitments to keeping strong salaries and benefits for public sector employees claimed much of what was left of that shrinking pot. And this angered many citizens who might have wanted that money freed up for other priorities. Corporate leadership and anti-union politicians often stoked the sentiment, portraying public sector workers as greedy and self-interested. These portrayals were particularly effective against teachers, as opponents of teachers' unions could present caricatures of teachers enriching themselves at the expense of what was good for children. Once again, the idea of the teacher as infinitely self-sacrificing paragon was brought out against which real teachers, when compared, inevitably looked self-serving. Negative public opinion against teachers' unions has grown particularly since the era of education reform began. I've done many episodes of this podcast about education reform. Season 1, Episode 3, Season 2, Episodes 11, 12, and 13, that detail the growing public dissatisfaction since the 1980s and never increasing into today, with the limitations of the uneven and inequitable patchwork quilt of 13,000 separate school districts that comprise what we call the U.S. public school system each of which largely makes its own decisions about curriculum, instruction, and policies, and is funded based on its own localized tax wealth, or lack thereof. The solutions that those policymakers finally settled on was a combination of raising standards and holding schools and teachers more accountable for student learning, without providing sufficient funding to equalize the financial playing field between cash-strapped and cash-flush districts. Wrapped up in this process was a series of contradictory calls and mandates for schools to teach less about memorization and recall and more about critical thinking, analysis skills, problem-solving, and higher-order thinking, while simultaneously instituting a system of assessments of school and teacher performance based on standardized tests that largely reward memorization, recall, and lower-level learning. Teachers and schools have been asked to address an ever-increasing variety of student needs, not just academic, but socio-emotional and physical health-based, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, all with often diminishing resources with which to do so. Somehow, in all of this messy series of movements and calls to action, teachers' unions have been branded as the universal villain. In an era of near-continual calls for rapid changes to the way schools operate, Teachers' unions have attempted to protect teacher autonomy and benefits in an ever-shifting landscape, and thus often end up in the position of conservatives, resisting change if they feel that change will harm working conditions, which, to give them their due, they argue are also the learning conditions of the students in those schools. Teachers' unions have argued, in no particular order, against standardized testing as being both harmful to students and unfair when used as a trigger for merit pay for teachers, See Season 2, Episode 12 for details of that argument, as well as Season 2, Episode 9. In this context, teachers' unions easily get painted as opponents of change, and worse, of selfishly arguing for teacher needs over what's best for students, to which they respond that these two sets of needs are linked, and that they as teachers understand better than management or outside corporate consultants what conditions will be best for both. Teachers' unions have also been active opposing attempts to get rid of teacher tenure, often to the opprobrium of those who feel that school leaders need more latitude in firing ineffective teachers, pointing to reports like the 2009 study by the New Teacher Project that revealed, quote, 81% of administrators and 57% of teachers say there is a tenured teacher in their school who is performing poorly, and 43% of teachers say there is a tenured teacher who should be dismissed for poor performance, end quote but who is being protected by those tenure provisions. Also, when districts receive funding cuts, most union contracts ensure that the teachers who have the most seniority are the ones who are retained, regardless of whether or not teachers with fewer years of experience are being more effective. The actions taken by several unions during the coronavirus pandemic, particularly in Chicago, yes, Chicago once again, to try and keep schools closed and operating remotely for the safety of teachers and students alike, proved to be highly unpopular among parents who were desperate to get their children back into in-person classrooms. The weight of this negative public perception has been growing. 
According to Harvard's Program on Education Policy and Governance, in the journal Education Next, the share of Americans who see teachers' unions as a negative influence on public schools was 31% in 2009, 43% in 2014, and almost 50% in 2021, and that's paralleled by trends in Gallup polls as well. Political leaders have taken heart from this growing opposition to teachers' unions to push for legislation to erode their power, and have been increasingly effective at doing so. In 2011, Republican Governor of Wisconsin Scott Walker made national headlines by, in the same state that had once been the first to permit public sector unions, breaking those same unions with the Budget, Rep with the budget Repair Act that aimed to save over $300 million in tax revenue by, among other things, decreasing state worker take-home pay by 8%, placing caps on pay raises, and overall eliminating most collective bargaining rights. Since he exempted police and firefighters from those provisions, most of the impact of this bill, which eventually became law, was on teachers. Walker was firm in his belief that teachers' unions had grown too greedy and were the prime obstacle to running a financially responsible government. On January 18, 2001, shortly after his inauguration, he said, quote, We are going to deal with collective bargaining for public employee unions. If we have collective bargaining agreements in place, there is no way not only the state but local governments can balance things out." Unquote. Despite protests that grew to as large as 100,000 and occupied the Capitol, and sympathy demonstrations nationwide, and 14 Democratic legislators who fled the state in an attempt to forestall the vote, the bill did become law. While some parts of that law were ruled unconstitutional a few years later, the majority of it was allowed to stand. In the words of Wisconsin State Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman in his 2014 decision enshrining the law's provisions, quote, No matter the limitation or burdens a legislative enactment places on collective bargaining process, collective bargaining remains a creation of legislative grace and not constitutional obligation. End quote. One of the effects of this law was that teachers' unions in the state could no longer automatically deduct dues from teachers' paychecks, and as such, their funding and their membership in Wisconsin declined significantly. Another part of the budget repair law also reduced state aid to K-12 school districts by about $900 million over the next two years, and with the power of teachers' unions hobbled, there was little teachers could do in the face of vanishing resources, larger class sizes, and lower pay. Supporters of the law maintain that this has not stopped Wisconsin public schools from consistently ranking between 8th and 11th in the nation in test scores. Opponents point to a growing teacher shortage in the state that they say will not improve until teaching conditions in the state improve as well. On the national level, a recent U.S. Supreme Court case in 2018 that was expected to deal a serious blow to teachers' unions was Janus v. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees Council 31, in which the highest court in the nation struck down laws on the books in 22 states that had permitted the charging of so-called agency fees. These were fees in states like Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, California, and Illinois, where the majority of American teachers work, that teachers were required to pay to unions, whether or not they actually joined those unions. The reasoning had been that, since those teachers still benefit from the collective protections that unions won for all teaching staff, they should be forced to contribute to union coffers. In a 5-4 to four ruling that split along party lines, the court found that this violated First Amendment rights by, quote, compelling employees to subsidize private speech on matters of substantial public concern, end quote. Union opponents had hoped that the promise of an extra $1,000 in teachers' pockets would tempt them to flee unions in droves, starving the unions of their revenue. But that actually didn't wind up happening in most states. Part of the reason why might be that among teachers themselves, teachers' unions' favorability remains high at nearly 70% as of last year. Support for teachers' unions also tends to fall along political lines, with 50% of Democrats but only 20% of Republicans holding favorable views. Teachers' unions do tend to contribute heavily to Democratic campaigns, although that relationship did suffer strain during the Clinton and Obama presidencies, both of which aggressively pressured schools to erode teacher protections in the name of innovation and accountability. Still, today Democratic politicians are more likely to remain supportive of teachers' unions and vice versa. 
Once the outlier and Johnny-come-lately to the world of collective bargaining, today, teachers' unions are among the last bastions and holdouts of unionism in the United States. And given their increasing public unpopularity, I'm not sure how much longer that status will last. As a veteran teacher, I've certainly benefited from the higher wages and job security that my union has won for me. I can think of some unfortunately unreasonable supervisors I've had in the past who might have dispensed with me had due process protections not been in place. And I've seen the union provide legal representation to colleagues who have run afoul of lawsuits, a danger which teachers increasingly face in this era of politicized education laws. At the same time, I've also had many projects and ideas that I've really believed in that I think could really have benefited my students shot down or cut off because of some inflexible union rule or fear of change. I've been a union office holder for my local and several times have been a representative to my state-level union conference and been both grateful for and struggled with the will of the larger organization. I've held hands with fellow union members at rallies and protests and shook my head in shame at decisions like when my state union refused to allow charter school teachers to be recognized but the larger organization for fear it would constitute approval of charter schools in general, and that holding to that ideology was apparently more important than actually extending the protections that we enjoyed to our brethren and sistren who worked in charter schools. Charter schools, incidentally, tend to be exempt from teacher union collective bargaining provisions, that teacher retention in charter schools tends to trail that of traditional public schools by almost 15 percentage points, See Season 2, Episode 1 for far more about charter schools and how they work. So much of the good things and the bad things said about unions are simultaneously true, just like can be said about any large organization. The annual meeting of the NEA, of which I remain a member, is the largest non-governmental democratic voting body in the country. That means that, at least in theory, unions are whatever their members make them out to be, which is why I've remained active. I see the potential for the good that unions do, for teachers and for our students, as outweighing the negatives. When friends in other professions express outrage at what they see as unfairly beneficial protection for teachers because of unions, I tend to respond that the solution is to reunionize other professions, like we're seeing Amazon.com employees finally getting some traction on doing, not destroy collective bargaining's last holdout. As I discussed in last season's finale, the teaching profession is more challenging now than it's ever been and teachers are leaving in unprecedented numbers. It's not going to be good for students if that process continues, and I don't see anyone else besides teachers' unions out there on the front lines trying to make those working conditions any better. I don't necessarily see a zero-sum equation between what helps students and what helps teachers in schools. When my union negotiates smaller class sizes because that helps me teach more effectively, my students benefit. When it negotiates more planning and prep periods, I use that time to create better lesson materials and to assess my students' work and get it back to them faster. When it gets me better health insurance, it means I'm healthier and in the classroom more days. Do some teachers abuse their union protections? Unfortunately, yes. There are surely those folks who use their sick days to go on beach vacations and who use the high bar to dismissal as a way to avoid growing as a professional. But it's a fallacy to say that a savvy administration can't get rid of irresponsible or underperforming teachers. In most states, there's a provisional period, three years plus one day in Massachusetts, where teachers who are new to a school can still be dismissed at the end of the year for no real cause, so that's the time when administrators should be paying attention for signs that a teacher's work just isn't cutting it. But even once a teacher's been around forever, they can still be let go if they're not doing a good job. It just takes a lot of time and documentation, and most administrators are overburdened and don't want to devote all that effort. But I think if a teacher is really failing their students, then that effort needs to become an administrator's priority. That's a ready-made solution, as opposed to eroding teacher protections for all of us in the hopes of making it easier to get rid of a few bad eggs. In turn, teachers' unions themselves also need to get a little bit smarter and more aggressive about self-policing for the good of all teachers' images, and perhaps get a little more creative about ways to preserve teacher dignity and efficacy without stonewalling innovation. But the bottom line is, teaching is an incredibly difficult job, in a way that's so challenging to explain for anyone who's not in this field. The hours are ridiculous. Most teachers arrive before the start of the school day, six or even earlier, 
teach four or five classes in high-stress environments without sufficient resources to large numbers of students with a wide variety of intense learning needs. Teachers stay hours after the school day ends for extra help or club advising or other activities. They counsel and support students outside of school hours in many other ways, and grade, grade, grade into the wee hours of the night and large chunks of weekends. Even portions of our summer vacation are often devoted to planning for the year to come or furthering our own education. Teachers do all of this in the face of constant cuts to resources, disproportionately low salaries, never-ending and ever-changing unfunded mandates from on high, and constant public criticism. This job is not easy, and it's no accident that 50% of teachers leave the profession within their first five years. Teachers' unions, for all their flaws, can sometimes seem like the only allies teachers have, the only ones offering actual tangible support to help them do their jobs and adequately teach their students. Until and unless the expectations of teachers become more realistic and the resources become more robust, teachers will always need what unions provide. And if teachers' unions were to disappear or become radically less empowered without something to take their place, in my personal analysis, that would deal the absolute death blow to an already beleaguered system of public education in the United States. Students, teachers, citizens, the whole nation would lose. And I would prefer to focus on a way that teachers' unions can be a part of the recipe for us all winning. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.